I remember what got me into cooking. Um, I'm pretty sure I had seen somebody cook a sunny side up egg in a cartoon. And then I asked my mom, I probably was like 12 or 13 maybe, if we could eat eggs any other way than scrambled. And she said, sure, as long as you cook it. And uh, I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to give that a try. And then ever since then, I've been cooking. And uh, I remember like cooking for my friend's parents and stuff when I was like 15. And um, uh, my mom enrolled me in... Uh, a high school class at I think it was Western Culinary Institute when I was in middle school and I was just like yeah I like I love this this I can you know cook with these high schoolers and this is normal uh, and so I, I feel like I've, I've it's been with me for a long time and I've tried to make it out a couple times uh, but I never got away from it this episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where now, September 24th to the 26th, you're going to find a big 40% off all house-made sausages. And Zupan's has a huge variety of them. They are made in-house. They're exclusive recipes featuring both chicken and pork. You can grill them up and throw them on a bun, pair them with your favorite vegetables for a delicious sheet pan meal, or pair with your favorite pasta and sauce. Possibilities are endless with all the sausages they have. And also coming up in October, in the middle of the month, keep an eye out and subscribe to the news feed and you'll see exactly when there will be 20% off all Oregon Pinot Noirs at Zupan's. Not bad. Now, if uh, Pinot Noir is not your thing, but maybe, I don't know, Oktoberfest beer is, how about Farm to Market Oktoberfest? Uh, made in collaboration with Old Town Brewing, this Marzen-style lager features dark malt roast, little caramel sweetness in it, just in time for the fall, or maybe a October th- uh, Oktoberfest theme party that you might be going to, say, in October, like I am. I'm going to grab myself a, a six-pack. Also, at Zupans, this is exciting. I have been seeing Kelly's Jelly at the, uh, at the uh, farmer's market for years. Well, they have teamed up with Zupans to create some exclusive spreads created with fruit from the Willamette Valley, and they're available in strawberry, seedless raspberry, seedless marionberry, and boysenberry. So uh, try those. That's a, uh, an exciting thing on toast or wherever else. Or if you want to marinate, I like those things. But uh, yeah. great fruit spreads from Kelly's Jelly at Zupans. Very nice. Three locations to serve you. West Burnside, Lake Oswego, and McAdam. And always, uh, where can you find all this information, Chris? Oh, Zupans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm Court Johnson from Portland Radio, kink.fm. Thank you, Court. And one thing you never had to do in radio was ask people to subscribe and share with their friends. So uh, we want people to subscribe to the podcast so they get the latest episodes and uh, share with their friends. And, you know, we're in an environment where there are a lot of podcasts now, so we appreciate every listener that's been with us for eight years and those that are just finding out about us now. Uh, You know, I marvel at the number of people who say, I didn't know this existed. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, no, we live in a we live in a podcast world which did not exist eight years ago, and so um, you know the fact that which is something we try to do every now uh, at least once a month we try to bring back what we call a classic episode, uh, something that uh, we think stands out that's still relevant today. But I mean, we've we've got well over three hundred episodes of of various people and various things, and um, we're happy to have people. So let's let other people know about it. Yeah, at least ha- half of those episodes, the people are still in the food business and in Portland. Half. That's all I can say. After the last year, who knows? But um, but there, you know, I've had a number of people tell me they're they're interesting to listen to, even if they're not in the food business anymore, because they're stories. That's what we're trying to do here. So. Um, I appreciate that, um, and it's always good to hear new listeners, and I always ask them for a little feedback. Um, I got a little the other day. I never really, we don't get a lot of feedback, Court. We have to just assume what we're doing is okay, because we still have listeners. Right. Still have listeners, and uh, nobody's yelling at us, so we'll take that as bo- two, two positives. I don't know whether that's good or bad, to have nobody <laughs> yelling at us. We used to think well, we needed to have that. Yeah, we've. All, I always take the approach on the radio side of things because you you rarely hear people saying, "Hey, good job." You you hear people when you when you're doing a bad job, and when you're not hearing that, and you can only assume. No news is good news, as they say. I suppose, and as long as our valued clients are still with it, with us, Zupans and Ringside, and we've had a couple of others along the way, we're very thankful for those folks too. It uh, it enables us to keep doing this. And now we're doing this remotely from, uh, you know, I'm remote. You're, at, are you in King Studios today? Or are you doing this from I home? Am, I am today. Yep. I'm in a, a tiny closet on, on a corner. Oh, very nice. Good closet yeah. on a corner. And mm-hmm. I'm in my office in Manzanita, which, uh, you know, when we first started doing the podcast this way, I res- resisted this. I wanted to be in the studio, but I'm, I'm getting to like doing it. And now that we've discovered this, uh, this new platform that we're recording on with our guests. Um, I'm happy about that. So um, I don't know if we're ever going to get back in the studio. And it's also probably reason why so many people are doing podcasts now, because you can do it and not have, not have to have a studio. Yeah. I, I yeah, no, I mean, I mean, thousands, if hundreds of thousands of dollars goes into broadcast equipment. And, and there is, there is a difference when you've got kind of the, the right equipment, but Technology is slowly catching up where uh, to sound semi-decent, you don't need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. You just spend a few hundred dollars and you're good. Right. So we haven't spent that yet. You have yet to get out here with that mic set up. I know. (laughs) So I was wondering this morning if that was just a pipe dream on your part or it may actually happen someday. It, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't want it to be a pipe dream, but the, the <laughs> fact that we, we're back into the, the school year and my daughters, you know, they're, they're, I've got a high schooler and a middle schooler, and then they're also involved in dance and then school leadership stuff. Like, oh boy, I, I, I almost want to go back to, and, and, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but I want to go back to pandemic times where this life was a little simpler, where we all just said, hey, we're just going to hang out at the house together. You don't want that. No. no, I don't want that. No, but, um, well, let's hope you can find some, it'll be nice out here when and if you ever do get out here, but I'm looking forward to that right at the fork mic. So, uh, so we look even more official and I had a friend, 
Oh, actually, it was Micah Camden, who I ran into in Bend a couple of weeks ago when I went to see John Gorham and Garrett Peck and Renee Gorham out at their opening of their pop-up. And Micah said, well, you have a really nice deck out there. Why don't you start doing video and invite your guests and have a very informal thing on your deck? I said, Micah, do you have any idea what it costs, what it would take to start doing video of all of these things that we do and take it from being a convenient thing where we could just pop online with a, with a web, you know, a webcam to that, to full production with multi-cameras. So, yeah, it would be nice, yeah. wouldn't it? But how do you, how do you, sure. actually, how do you do that unless you're part of a big podcast network, I suppose? With nah, a, there's 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 way around it. I mean, if if I actually had a if I weren't in a closet currently, Chris, I would I would have a camera on me and I'd at least be able to look at you, and and we you know. Well, that's different. But I'm talking about you know going out of my deck and doing full roundtable, you know, oh, sure. discussions. That's what he was suggesting, and it's a great yeah. idea. But just yeah. when, you know, after doing this for eight years, we know what the logistics are, and you know, it's like you could have a great idea at a restaurant, but you have actually have to do it too. So, right. um, speaking of great ideas for restaurants, wow, what a segue that was! I wanted <laughs> to mention this because I find it kind of interesting. So, uh, we have some friends, um, and I guess I'll leave them nameless, uh, who came on our trip with Jose Chesa to uh, Spain. We went to Barcelona, the wine country, and then up to uh, San Sebastian and Bilbao a few years ago. And they loved it so much they decided to move to San Sebastian. Well, their house in Portland is on the market right now. And it is one of the most remarkable homes in Portland in that it was built from just a crappy old warehouse at 16th and Division to this incredible house of two houses actually two living dwelling units and then 2,000 square feet that was devoted to a train set that my friend built himself downstairs so it's a 10,000 square foot residence on 16th and division you can look up 1600 southeast division and look at this and i've thought as opposed to a residence it would make the perfect home for a certain restaurant it comes with event space and even living space, too. So all these people looking to get creative. Uh, it may seem like a high price tag, $5.25 but if you break that down in terms of a mortgage and what one would pay for rent in a commercial building, it really makes a lot of sense. This, it may not be ready commercially to be a kitchen, but it's, it's, it's there. It's gorgeous. Yeah. So um, let us know, because we can put you directly in touch with the owners. So let write us at... Uh, where do we write? Just I'll tell you what, go on Food Podcast PDX on Instagram and direct message us. If you know of anybody who would be interested in this, we can put you directly in touch with the owners and uh, or they may choose to include the real estate broker as well. But um, but uh, at any rate, we'd like to help uh, on both sides of the equation. And I just thought here we are. We're what on minute 10 of this introduction. Um, it would be of interest to people to look at this house because it is, it is absolutely, you can't say there's anything like it in the city of Portland uh, at all. So yeah, Very unique. In fact, I think, Chris, the Oregonian picked up on it and had a little uh, write-up on the, on, at least on the Oregon Live portion of it because it is such a, it's such a unique property in Portland that 
people need to check it out. Yeah, and I've had the, the fortune of hanging out there. And actually, we all went to dinner at Andina uh, about a month ago with my girlfriend. And I had to humbly ask them, because I wanted Renee to see it, I humbly asked him as we were standing outside of Andina, is there any chance that we could go by your house, swing by your house and you could see it? And the crazy thing was we went by at 1030 at night. Uh, of course, they were unprepared for that request. And it was as though a clean of professional hotel cleaner came in and had cleaned it waiting for us to arrive to see it. It was so impeccable at the time. And it doesn't surprise me if you know these folks. It, uh, they, I'm sure they leave it like that every time they leave the house. So, all right, that's enough of that. Let's get to today's interview. Um, I was really pleased to see a gentleman by the name of Cameron Lee Dunlap, who I knew had been working at Fireside and had also in his past worked with Aaron Barnett at St. Jack and La Moule. And uh, I think we talk about some other places that he's worked in the podcast and you can certainly look it up. But he has decided to start his own restaurant called Morcella, which is going to open in mid-October. And uh, when I saw him post on Facebook that he was delighted uh, he was beyond the moon that he got his first write up in Eater, something he had always wished for and dreamed of. And so I wrote him thereafter and said, I don't know if you've been on a podcast, but we'd like to uh, we'd like to have you on. And it turns out he's never been on a podcast before. So uh, we wanted to give him that first experience. Nice. Yeah, uh, we always enjoy first timers. I don't know. Yeah, we have had quite a few first timers and yeah. they're usually nervous and, you know, we try to put them at ease. It's not this is not 60 minutes. We're not challenging challenging them. But I did challenge him just mildly in a Portland way to ask um, about his business model that is of course, going to be socially responsible. And uh, there are other aspects to it that um, coming off of the pandemic and coming off of a lot that has happened in Portland in the last year, um, Cameron is cognizant of and wants to make sure, you know, all employees feel loved. And uh, I challenge him just a little bit to say, is it possible that restaurateurs who may not have that out, uh, reputation in the past still wanted to do right by their employees. Well, some didn't, of course, but uh, I wanted to chat with him a little bit about that, um, about rea the reality of the restaurant business versus the dreams. And so uh, he's a younger guy than I am, for sure. Almost everybody is younger than I am now on the podcast. Um, we do have a few that are older here and there. Um, but Cameron was really cool, and I enjoyed talking to him about his past, uh, some of the chefs that he keeps an eye out for in Portland, which was interesting, and um, also what he plans doing at Marcella. And I even had a business idea for him. See if anybody else thinks it's a good idea. Every time I come up with a restaurant business idea, it gets shot, shot down pretty quickly. He didn't necessarily shoot this one down. Oh, well, that, that probably felt great. So, yes. So finally, after this long introduction, we give you Cameron Lee Dunlap.
Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. And by... Portland Food Adventures. Ready to break out and travel to some of the world's most delicious destinations? Portland Food Adventures has space available on two trips in 2022 to Basque Country in Spain with Chef Javier Canteras of Urdaneta. Also, if you've never experienced Italy with Austria Enzyme, join Chris for the most delicious nine days in Western Sicily imaginable. Info at portlandfoodadventures.com. silence so court can find it so anyway thank you welcome I appreciate your uh, coming on and I'm hoping Cameron that um, that your being on right at the fork is almost as exciting for you as getting written up an eater well I would say now I have two eater write-ups but I have no podcast so that is pretty exciting no podcast whatsoever well that is exciting and you know Nowadays, um, that's good to hear. It's not good to hear, but it's interesting to hear because when we started this, nobody even knew what a podcast was. So now mm-hmm. there, there are food podcasts around and lots going on. So yeah, um, I'm I've on- actually been watching um, or I've been listening to a podcast that just has me totally enthralled. It's called How to Save the Planet and a uh, really good one to check out, but I think that's what got me excited about you know, doing a podcast is I realized what, you know, awesome information that kind of held in, um, you know, to be part of one is really exciting. I am honored to be your first one. I don't think we're going to be the last. And I'm hoping that, that actually this is a good, we, we can start with this and go somewhere else. But I'm hoping that we um, can do another down the road because we're in year eight and we've certainly caught up with a lot of the folks that we've interviewed in the past to see where they are mm-hmm. and what's going on. And I say that because I was looking at uh, as much as I could find of your resume this morning on Facebook, where you've worked, right? Mm-hmm. So you've been some great places in Portland. You've been at La Moule, you've been at Irving Street Kitchen. You, it looks like you, you know, a couple of stints at the fireside, probably when they opened and then you're back. Yeah. So um, I'm hoping if we hook up again in two or three years, it's about you're still at Morkella and you can tell us that. But uh, you've moved around a little bit. So I think you're, from what I can tell, and you, we're going to get to know you now, you're a creative person and creative people tend to get bored pretty quickly. So, uh, well, I think you really hit the nail on the head right there. <laughs> that sums well, me up. Then, we can, then we're done. We, 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 <laughs> we did it all. No, so, but, but just by looking at your podcast, I mean your uh, resume, I thought, oh, you've moved around quite a bit. Let's talk about that. Why from place to place? Not necessarily negative. It's given you lots of good experience with some great, some great chefs out there and some great their teams as well. Yeah, absolutely. I. I think that um, maybe back in the day, it didn't look so good to move around, um, like in the early part of my career, but I did get bored pretty quickly. I would learn a menu and then, you know, look at what else was offered and 
Um, at the time, there wasn't very much turnover, so it seemed like once your opportunity dried up, it was you know there wasn't much room to to move up. Um, especially like at the pace that I wanted, I'm sure in my earlier years too that I wanted more than um, I was ready for in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm only 31 years old, so I feel like that's probably been something pretty um, consistent throughout my career is just kind of looking for the next thing, whether I'm ready or not, and then just going for it and then uh, learning along the way. But um, I really do think that by being able to learn from some really wonderful chefs out there and also some really wonderful like line cooks um, who have shared things, even, you know, dishwashers have shared things with me that I've never seen a chef teach me. And um, so I think all of those experiences added up kind of culminates me even running a restaurant today and um, having all those experiences I think has given me a really broad spectrum as to things you can learn uh, in, in the industry. Uh, well, yeah. So, and, and also, I would imagine as you're opening up your restaurant, it gives you a little bit of a pool of friends and colleagues and people you respect to tap to see if they can or whether they will work with you at your new restaurant. Yeah, it's actually really crazy. Um, at Fireside, for the last two years almost, um, I would say maybe like 85% of our hires were word of mouth and people we know and personal reference. Um, Poached is, I'm sure everybody is on Poached and desperately trying to hire people off Poached and you know getting 30 resumes and then maybe two of them show up and one of them stays on your staff. So I've actually found that 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 kind of thinking about you know meeting people and considering that how you work next to somebody could be that you're their boss later down the road or they're your boss later down the road um so i actually had a culinary school teacher tell me that like you know be thoughtful about how you're working and who you're working next to and how you treat people because you could be in that situation and i have very much found myself in that situation and I, I would attribute a lot of my successes as a chef by um, who I surround myself with. And so uh, I definitely think that that's been a very important part along the way. You're right. And so um, what is your, you know, you're opening a restaurant, which is going to now encompass some new things that you haven't really done before, I would imagine. So what mm -hmm. is your real strength? as you open your restaurant and what are you going to need to rely on some other folks to do for you to help you be successful? Sure. Well, I'm definitely the creative type like you have stated. So, um, I would say my two strengths are creativity and, um, uh, being a people person. And I think that, you know, organizing people and, talking to people and being able to um, to to work with them and relate with them and to care about them ultimately is something that I'm seeing as invaluable right now, especially right now. I think that people want to know that their bosses or employers genuinely care about them because 
Um, something else I've realized is that everybody that I meet in this industry has the same feeling of exploit of, of being exploited at some point throughout their career. It might not be where they're at right now, but everyone will tell you the story that they have. And um, that really kind of struck a, a note with me that this is a really important thing to be good at right now is just um, being relatable. And then, um, so some of my, my weaknesses that I definitely know that I have, and I'm, I'm okay with having them also and appreciate the people around me for that, but uh, sometimes it can be organization, sometimes it can be, uh, you know, extra cleaning projects when I'm thinking about all these other things, and sometimes it's, um, I would say definitely all the front of house stuff. I've put all my eggs into the cooking basket, so I'm, I'm definitely leaning on some other expertise from uh, my staff to help me with that, I think. Also, like creating all of the buttons in the POS systems and stuff like that is not uh, something I would normally jump onto as a project. So I'll be handling that off, or handing that off to um, someone on my staff. And then, yeah. Do you think I you're gonna need? Are you gonna need to learn that with them? Because I think to run something, you need to be able to know where they may be falling short. If they're, you know, running the POS system, you need to be able to know what questions to ask and, you know, have yeah. experience with it. So, um, yeah, no, I'm just, uh, I, and, and, and you mentioned the front of the house. That's one of the things that um, I think Portland always has. It hasn't been a secret that Portland could do better uh, with, right. with service. And especially coming out of the pandemic now, one of the things that has been lacking. I mean, I'll, I can't go on, on and on enough about the fact that eating food out of a box at home is not dining. That's food. That's it's not an experience. Right. Yeah. It's not an experience. So we're, we're getting back to that. And I'm so looking forward to I've had some great experiences. I was at Republica uh, last oh, week. Oh, yeah. And that was just spectacular and you know uh, some other places too it's so nice to get back and do that so if you if that's not your strong suit and you're opening yeah. a restaurant um, I don't know who you've hired already or who you're planning on yeah hiring, but... well I can definitely touch on that a little bit um, so part of what I'm doing is that we're gonna do an equal tip pool with everybody so I think it's really important with a small staff in a small restaurant that we're not really a front of house and a back of house. We are just a house. Um, so everybody is going to need to learn to do everything. All of the kitchen will get their OLCC licenses and know how to break up, uh, break down and set up the dining room and ring things in and use the POS system. Um, I am also going to be working with everybody to like understand how to read a P&L, we're going to go over everything, all of my numbers will be transparent in the, the name of um, using the collective mind of my staff to be successful. And um, I really, I, I have hired a really excellent staff that I couldn't be more thrilled about. And I also definitely think that it's important to say that, you know, no chef would be where they are without their employees. And so uh, I, I got to give a shout out to my crew real quick. It's sure. uh, Ray Gray, who worked at Headwaters with Paley. And then I have Brenda O'Malley, 
who has worked with uh, the Dentons very, very well. And then um, David Stevenson is my best friend, and he's also been a chef, and I've worked with him at five different restaurants, and now we're going to own one together. And then um, I have uh, Viv and um, Wyatt are my front of house, and they're both from Ox, so I have an incredible staff that's going to be backing me up and teaching me a lot, too, I'm sure. So... Um, so we are all going to learn everything together, and I'm definitely going to learn this stuff, and I want to know it. I want to be excellent at owning a restaurant and be able to help everybody out in everybody's job. So that's kind of my role is like the float, where I'll, I'll be doing a little bit of everything. But I feel like, uh, and I know we haven't opened yet, but I feel like these are the kinds of people that are all leaders. So I have a leaderful crew. Um, who are always going to know what to do or how to figure out what to do without me being there. And they'll be able to teach each other and to teach me. So uh, I have a huge excitement just to be working around these people who are ultimately going to make me a better chef and a better restaurant owner. Good. And you probably already have your vacations planned since they can do it all without you there. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm planning joking. on being there for I'm quite a while. With you. I'm, I'm just joking with you, but 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 yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> it, it's a goal anyway. It's going to take a while it's to get there, I'm sure. But it's interesting that you mentioned quite a few people from Ox because when you were talking about your front of the house, back of the house model or house model, the first thing that came to mind was a few years ago when Superbite, one of the mm -hmm. Denton's restaurants, went to that model where they would have people, the sh cooks, line cooks coming out and serving the food it's yeah. been done that's nothing that's brand new but they were highlighting it as a way to do business and a way to be sustainable in the business as well at the time yeah that was actually the the first person for me that that put that thought in my head that that was something i was interested in and um i i guess i would have liked to see more success with that i, I think that if they had had a little bit more success i think you know, I, I don't really, I can't really speak on what happened there. Obviously, Bistro Agnes is super successful, uh, you know, following that. But I would have liked to see that concept followed through a little bit more and maybe other people to try it because ultimately I do think that's the way of the future of sustainability here. And I think people are a little afraid to make differences or changes um, in the, the model of how a restaurant works. But uh I, I would have really liked to see more of that so that we could learn from it and, you know, understand more of the challenges that we're going to face um, as we, we move forward with our restaurant. Yeah, there's a lot of learning to, uh, there's a lot of learning in front of you and everybody because now is a time when obviously over the last year there was a lot discussed that couldn't necessarily be implemented yet. And, you know, everybody was talking about change, the changes necessary in the industry, but to do it is a different thing. I mean, I look back and I, we just had uh, uh, Kurt Huffman and Andy Fortgang on the podcast the last two weeks. And I'm a proponent of the European model, which, by the way, Europe is kind of moving away from it, the no tipping model. Yeah. And, and I, think, I, I think that'd be great, but, you know, Kurt is... Um, is very emphatic in saying that doesn't work in this country or this market. It's not going to work. 
So, mm -hmm. um, so every time somebody tries something, that's not drastic, I don't think. It's the same 20% that you would leave. It's just not a decision I don't have to make any longer. Right. And, and frankly, I kind of like it for the smaller things, going in and get coffee and bagels. I don't want a tip line. I just want I just want that to be in the price so I can buy a bagel the way I did in 1995 instead of that. So right. that's my feeling on it. And I'm sorry I went off and No, I I I agree with that 100%. Like there I that's something I have questioned myself as like I feel like that's a pretty big thing to do. I I'm honestly I'm too afraid to do it. I think that I I am very interested in change, but I'm also very interested in being a successful business owner. And I think that that might just, I don't know, like it might just throw customers off. But, you know, when you get a plumber, you pay them for the job and like you don't, you don't say, oh, I feel like you were kind of fast today. I'm going to give you like a little, like a little less or like I'll give you a little extra. You don't do that. You just pay for the job and you're done with it and you know yeah it's expensive but like you had to get it done it's like well if you really want to go out to eat and enjoy that experience pay a little bit more for it and be done with it but don't you know be the judge on what i guess how much somebody deserves like that should be worked into the cost of the, the menu but but that's why still, it didn't work because apparently people wanted they thought they were having control so that if someone, if the service was lacking, they wanted to be able to not leave as much. And that, uh, what I, from what I understand, uh, is why it doesn't work psychologically on the consumer side. But the mm -hmm. truth of the matter is nobody has control when the meal is over anyway. If that were really the case, you'd tip up front and say, here, here's 20, take care of us. Or here's 40, take care of us. Uh, yeah. So I never understood that. But um but yeah, you're you're moving into you've got an interesting proposition going on, and I know you know it. But you're moving yeah. into territory post pandemic, opening a restaurant. Your uh, concept is interesting. It's not it's not wide mass appeal food. Mm -mm. What you're going to be doing, I think, in Portland, you you know, there's a lot of curiosity and interest in what you're doing. Which, by the way, we should explain in a few as in a minute. Um, but yeah, you've got a lot of things that uh, are un, untested and unsure yet, other than the fact that if you do a great job and you've got a great, uh, you'll get you'll get recognition and do pretty well. But let's talk a little bit about Morkella, and also, are people going to pronounce it correctly um, as you know throughout your life history? Sure. Um, well, I guess that's up to them, and how many times I want to. Um correct them but uh we call it morcella um, i looked up the actual proper pronunciation this morning english pronunciation fair. was morcella and i was curious about that because i don't like to pronounce things incorrectly so there go that goes to my question yeah i mean like you can you can like you can say it however you want i mean like when you go up to look like look up how to say echinacea you're like i don't know what the hell that says like mm -hmm. that's you know, a very strange spelling, but uh, that's how a lot of scientific names and whatnot are. But anyways, um, Morcella is the genus name for morel mushrooms, and so we're going to be focusing on um, wild and foraged 
foods of Oregon. And so we wanted to highlight the mushrooms because everybody on my staff is very excited about them. And uh, a couple of us forage for them. Um, David, my co-chef, he is training his dog to be a truffle dog and found about a pound last year of white truffles. And that was an incredible experience just to go dig some up uh, in the forest. And so um, we will be serving a lot of like all the wild mushrooms that are available in Oregon. But also, I think it's important to note that there are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of ingredients out there that are, to me, wild and exotic. And they're in our backyard. So that's kind of what the excitement of the food comes from. And I think that it's a really great outlet for my creativity and also my staff's because this will never get boring. We could be learning about this for the rest of our lives and just be fascinated and be surprised every year with things that we never knew. Um, and we also have a professional forager who's working with us. Um, his name is Kai. He is part of the Khaled's tribe. And um, to be working with him is something special without... Uh, without a, a price tag. Um, he's actually a year younger than me as well. And so I, like meeting him, I was probably, I think I was like 26 maybe, and he was 25. And I expected him to be this older guy who, you know, was wearing the, the khaki dad pants or cargo shorts or something in a, a vest, like an old hiker guy. But I mean, it's this kid who's younger than I am. And I remember we walked around the block um, at Barista on 23rd and he just pointed out like 20 different edible plants in that one block. Mm. And I was just like, I don't know what it is, but this, this guy's special. And, um, you know, we, we have a really cool relationship now where he goes out to the forest and every week he'll be bringing us um, a big goodie basket of all the things that you can eat. And um, enough for service it, for the week, isn't that? Isn't that a kind of a large undertaking to make sure you're able to for, forage enough? Yeah, right. I, so we we had a pop up uh, in 2016 and 17, and it was called Origin Wild Pop Up. And so I knew that I wanted to cook this food, but quickly it became an issue of the logistics. You know, like, how can you make a menu with, let's say, like, 50 ingredients and 30 of them are wild? So, you know, how do you forage for all that? How do you get all that done? Um, and how are we, I mean, that definitely plays in at the restaurant as well. Um, but having Kai as, you know, a partner in this is is really incredible because he'll be bringing in stuff every week for us. Um Two, two of us on the staff already do forage as well, and so we're only open five days a week, so that leaves us time to go enjoy nature on our weekends. And, you know, if, you, if you're foraging for us as an employee, like, you, you'll get paid for it too. Um, ultimately, it helps our food cost, and we'll be able to serve, you know, even if you can't get a big amount of things, we're going to end up working on a... Um, Instead of a chef's tasting menu, it's going to be a forager's tasting menu. Mm -hmm. And it'll be the wildest menu that you could ever imagine. Um, probably a really great learning experience as well. But that will be where we have a place for all of these smaller things like 
you know, like a quart of red huckleberries would take a couple hours to pick, mm -hmm. but they're a really special ingredient and they're like the caviar of the woods, I feel like. So, you know, to think of it that way and the value that we can put on these things, um, it's a little bit of an incentive for us to go get them ourselves when, when we can. Um, we're not open till five. So if, if somebody is like, hey, I really want to go forage for this this morning and be like, okay, I'll go and do the prep and then you can go forage today and meet me back at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, be, having a small operation leaves a lot of room to play. And um, also just having a really talented staff that is able to forage as well is uh, super important. So um, I like I'll the idea of getting like paid to forage. I think that's going to be appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I've thought about this a lot, too, that, like, it would be really great to even have, like, a little quarter-acre farm that we could grow all of our own stuff on where everybody gets to take a day off of working in the kitchen to work on the farm, and then, you know, you could save a ton of produce costs and also be paying for your extra labor to do that. Um, but I think it's really important to think about how to take our career sometimes out of the kitchen. I think that's, uh, I think that's totally overlooked. It's like going to a field trip at school, you know, like sometimes your learning is outside of the kitchen. And I think that if I could facilitate that as an owner, I would be really successful in that, um, with my employees. I think I was just watching last night, as a matter of fact, a, a PBS series, the future of jobs. And one of the things they point out is that people want some diversity and don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting that you're on that. I, I, I wonder, as a, I'm a marketing person, you know, at heart, mm -hmm. um, how much of the uh, of coming into Morcella will be the experience of learning uh, mm -hmm. in addition to tasting because I would imagine you can't just obviously it's Portland everybody talks about ingredients when they're serving them but there's got to be some education that goes on and I, f I think that would be very interesting to a lot of people in addition to tasting it but just learning wow I can eat this too yeah I think that's a, a lot of people's um, comment is I like wow I didn't know you could eat that like I've, I've seen it before I didn't realize it was edible um, I, so, so Kai right now, my foragers is supposed to be able to be there on, um, Fridays and Saturdays when we do the foragers tasting menu. And so I'm hoping that he will be a part of serving some of the food and also just be there to kind of explain to people some of the, the details about these things and where they come from and some of the historical important facts about them. Uh, especially as it relates to Native American food sources. That's um, something that he brought up to me that would be really important is to talk about eating wild and invasive non-native species. And that um, if we could educate on that part, that that would be a great service to the Native American folks around here and protecting their historical food sources. So um, I, think, I think we have a huge undertaking with the education part that I'm excited to be part of um, for multiple reasons, but uh, we'll do some of that through social media 
and we will do some of that while you're there at the restaurant and then also we have this really really cool mural that we just got done by this artist named firecat and it's across the entire wall and it's all wild food so there's definitely going to be times where you're going to be able to see the plant on the wall while you're eating it. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's definitely, uh, I, I feel like my restaurant experience is definitely like the opposite of the Blue Hour experience, but with the same level of food. So, uh, you know, RIP Blue Hour. I also worked there for a little bit, but I have some fond memories there. Um, I drove by that two nights ago and I was so sad to just see it just dark it's just yeah uh, david and i both worked there while we were doing like a 14 course tasting menu with chris Carricker and i was gonna say what you're doing yeah. sounds a lot like there, there's chris influence there you know uh he was a huge influence on me it's kind of funny now actually we i i did something silly and i pranked the kitchen when i was leaving um and maybe he didn't appreciate that so much, but uh, I hope that he, wherever he is out there in California, hears that he influenced me in a very positive way and that I appreciate him for his time um, teaching me and spending so much time with me one-on-one -on -one, um, and ultimately, like, inspiring me to be the chef that I am today. So, Chris, thank you, chef. You know, hopefully you hear this. He was one of my favorite chefs. I was, you know... Back when nobody was leaving Portland, he did. <laughs> so uh, he was one yeah. of the first to, not one of the first, but one, at the time, it was unusual for someone to decide to leave Portland. But not a bad place to go, San Diego. I, I don't know if he's still there. I assume he is. But I think so. We'll send, him, we'll send him this podcast so he can hear that. Do it. Uh, you know, not that you can't just write him directly and say that. So um, I just, I'm curious to see how you react to this. It sounds to me like it would be kind of a fun thing to have to invite customers to do a little foraging for you and bring some some product in and say, hey, can you make this? I know my friend Gary the Foodie has done this with, you know, certain chefs around town. He'll bring his own thing and say, can you do this? Is that something yeah. you would have thought about or considered or, you know, maybe that's an interesting way to source uh, food, um, and not do it yourselves. Yeah. Um, I, I would be super into that. I think, well, I like a good challenge first of all, but second of all, I think there's a huge part of, uh, foraging that people don't realize is there. And that is the urban foraging, right? Um, I guess part of, part of my food always feel like, feels like, and I don't know why this is why this is what I call it, but it's, kind of where the concrete meets the forage, or the forage, the concrete meets the forest. Um, I feel like at the edge of every forest is like right where all the best foraging is. And a lot of things grow really well in disturbed soils. Um, I, I liken it to a light switch where when you have the foraging light switch, you turn it on and it never gets turned off. Mm -hmm. So... I'll routinely notice things when I'm driving. It's really bad. I should just be driving, but all I see is food everywhere I drive. Um, but there are hundreds of edible species all over Portland, and so I love working with those. That was actually kind of something that um, 
got me interested in foraging in the first place was I was a broke line cook and I wanted to work with exotic ingredients and I couldn't afford them. So I realized that we have some very exotic ingredients that go for really high prices on the market and, you know, among chefs and restaurants like elderberries or nettles or miner's lettuce. Like these are like weeds. They grow everywhere, but they, you know, they fetch a pretty penny on your menu when you put them on there because people feel like they're exotic. And so I would say to people who would be interested in that, um, look around and see what you have and, you know, do some research. And if you find something cool, uh, I might have cooked it already. And if I haven't already, then I'd like to learn. And I also think that there's, you know, you can't just look up a recipe for, well, I guess you can a little bit more now, but um, the recipes that are out there for wild foods are so much few and far between um, compared to regular produce. You know, there's a lot of like figuring out how to use these ingredients because a lot of the times things from the wild are, are not as palatable. They're not bred to be a strawberry that is big and juicy and can sit on the supermarket shelf for three weeks. Um, so... So I would definitely say that would be fun to to challenge each other almost to, um, you know, try some new things. I just think it would be fun. It's interesting that you mentioned that light switch. And I have a couple of comments on what you're talking about. But the light switch, I have a friend who uh, has a cabin out in Goldendale. So he drives along the gorge on 84 quite often. And I have driven there zillions of times at the Hood River. Well... One drive, he said, so how many eagles can you think you can count? And I said, I don't know, are they even here? And because yeah. I was with him in the car, we counted about 80. So I've driven down that road a zillion times and just haven't been paying attention in the trees. Yep. And I still try once in a while and I don't see that many. The other thing I'll mention is we just did a um, pretty awesome uh, trip with Jonathan, the chef at Ringside. And also, um, we did another one with, um, with Leaf and Eric from Flying Fish. But Jonathan, cool. on that trip out at, uh, on the Snake River for four days, he was coming back with ingredients, elderberries or, or mulberries and apricots that he was finding that nobody was really even seeing, but he just yep. managed to find it. And it was exciting. People were, were really interested in eating the food that was from 80 feet away that they didn't know existed. So I thought, uh, you know, that was a really nice experience. Where do you plan? Hold on. Let's go to a little break right now. And then I want to come back and ask a little bit about geography in the Portland area. We know there's a lot of beautiful, there are a lot of forests and parks. I just want to talk about um, where, where you're going to do a lot of your foraging and, um, and hear a little bit more about that when we come back. Hey, Chris, let's pause just a moment and talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. Yeah, where they've always had your safety in mind. Uh, of course, they have those beautiful updated booths and spent a lot of money on their ventilation system to update it to current standards and beyond. Um, so whether it's their delightful outdoor dining or inside, you can always enjoy Ringside Hospitality knowing their steps ahead when it comes to safely serving you a fantastic experience. And of course, ringside always satisfies Chris. So if you've got something like, I don't know, A5 Wagyu, maybe that's your thing. 
you can come and enjoy it at Ringside Steakhouse. Yeah, so no matter what the size group, whether you're just going to go dine as a romantic evening with two, some friends and family with four, or if you'd like a setting for a small group gathering, Ringside, of course, can put that together for you too safely. Reservations are super easy to do. You just go to the Open Table app or ringsidesteakhouse.com, make that reservation, or you can actually walk in without a reservation for bar top seating. Yeah, Ringside for over 75 years. 75! And mm-hmm. it's all as the hallmark of great service and stakes in Portland. All right, we're back with Cameron Lee Dunlap. And by the way, do you always like the Lee? Is is do we do we always put the Lee with the Cameron? I don't know. It's grown on me. I'm from the south, so I guess it just kind of like I I like it. Yeah, we'll go. With yeah, it. no, I didn't know. I just I always want to call someone. You know, if I come up and say, it's easier to say hi, chef. But, uh, you know, does someone address you as Cameron Lee? I'm still not super comfortable with the name being Chef. (laughs) Well, it's going to happen, and I do that a lot because I think it's a a term that connotes respect. So, um, Fair enough. I'm not a doctor, though. Yeah, no, no one's going to call you a doctor. But you're going to be a doctor of nature. So um, you'll have a doctorate in nature soon. Let's talk a little bit about... Where a lot of the foraging that you that you and your staff will um, will source a lot of your food from? Yeah, um, so I would say the closest one that I avoid now, um, but I would encourage people to spend some time out there, especially if they're interested in learning, um, would be Forest Park. I think that that is a really great place to learn, kind of what our forest around us has. Um, it has a lot of the same vegetation that you would see in the surrounding forest. So uh, grab a, a Peterson's Field Guide to Northwest Edible Plants and you know go spend some time, start identifying stuff. Um, but I spent my first part of foraging um, education, I guess you would say, in the Tillamook Forest. Mm -hmm. It's actually really, really close to Portland. It's less than, it's like 45 minutes away to get to the edge of the forest. So um, I would routinely go there before work uh, for six hours or so in the mornings and just start foraging there. Um, I would say it is very like mountainous, mountainous and hard to climb through some of it and very, very thick. So the other forest I really like to go to is the Mount Hood National Forest. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit more uh, calm terrain, um, but those are the two closest ones I think that um, most of the time when we go out looking, that's probably where we will be is one of those two places. And so do you have scheduled? You obviously have to be organized and have uh, Thursday. Do you need to do it daily? How often do you need to do it? To um, a menu. So I would say weekly, like weekly should be fine. Um, we are, we're able to buy some products from specialty purveyors like Cascade Organics. And um, there's another one called Forage and Farm that's out of Seattle uh, that does deliveries here. But they all do foraging um, professionally and sell a lot of products that are in season that we'll be using. So we have a backup. Um, which is good, but Kai kind of in his own is able to supply us with most of our stuff that we need. So 
I think we'll be doing, we, we won't be relying like in a business sense on myself and David to do all the foraging mm -hmm. um, or my other cooks. I think that's going to be more of like an educational piece for each other to grow into. But um, to start out, I know that Kai goes to both of those forests that I mentioned earlier to do a lot of foraging. Um, so, you know, there's there's other things like we will be using some farmed vegetables uh, and in, in the name of comfort a little bit as well, just because um, everything you're going to be eating is so new that there's got to be some kind of like baseline or some kind of... Uh, comfort or relatability to the food. I think if we just went all wild, people would be like, yeah, I just ate it, but I don't know what I just ate. Like, Well, I agree, and I think it become, then it be, would become just a destination special occasion restaurant, and you don't necessarily want that. You want people to come back to, you know, to recommend to their friends and that, you know, you don't know how, how, how um, adventuresome some people are that you recommend to. So there, there does need to be some sort of familiarity with what's on the menu. Yeah, I think like a really good example of that would be that um, all of us on the kitchen staff have uh, handmade pasta training. And so we'll be doing lots of different handmade pastas. Um, and the first one we're starting with is going to be just a wild mushroom pappardelle and uh it's super super delicious we've already tried it and tested it out and um you know we'll have wild mushrooms on the the menu all year long that's kind of going to be a staple of our uh cuisine at morkella and um and so that's that's kind of that relatable side of things and another one would be uh we'll have kind of our simple salad like you would see at a lot of restaurants um, but that's going to be with like dandelion greens and chickweed and miner's lettuce and wood sorrel and, um, some of the, the less bitter greens that you can find out there. A lot of, a lot of the greens in the wild are quite mm -hmm. bitter. I'll, I'll give you the, the, uh, the first hand there is just that like, it's not grown for us to be this delicious food mm -hmm. that has no flavor. It is very full of lots of flavors and sometimes they don't always agree but so we're choosing the most uh m mild ones that we can and then we're going to do a fiddle pollen vinaigrette and candied hazelnuts and then um vinegar soaked in dried currants um so like hazelnuts grow wild here all of the greens grow wild here the fiddle pollen was harvested here um the currants grow all over the place like if you go to central oregon or like the Deschutes National Forest, which is a really cool one too. Um, you can see just like fields of red currants growing everywhere. And it's it's really crazy. I, f I found myself there on like a guy's weekend and we were all outside like playing basketball. And then I looked up and like realized that there was red currant bushes as far as the eye could see kind of thing. Um, so anyways, like some, some things we will be using are are things that you can find in the wild from Oregon, but they're not necessarily like we forage them 100%. So part of it is us foraging and part of it is a representation of what can be foraged in Oregon. All right, let's talk a little bit more about the economics of the restaurant and the social issues that you and I chatted about last week, because I think that's important that we get into that. 
and um, I'd love to talk about what your uh, what your objectives are, objectives slash dreams. <laughs> and the sure. reason I ask that is because I'm going to go out on a limb, no pun intended. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I it may be I haven't been in your industry, but I've talked to a lot of people. It may be that some of the things that you want to accomplish are awesome, but then the economics come into play and you might have to, just like politics, you might have to make some compromises along the way. And those are going to be very difficult decisions for you because you know exactly where you want to go. So uh, let's start with what you'd like to do, what you'd like to accomplish coming off of a lot of shit that went down in the pandemic that we saw and heard. Uh, right during the pandemic i'm not saying because of it but during the last year and a half let's talk about that right. a little bit yeah um well i think the first thing is that i decided that um the the hourly wage inequity between the front and the back of the house is a problem and i think everybody pretty much has known that for a long time but uh, I feel like cooks feel pretty helpless in trying to change that because it's like, oh, that's how the world works. And then the front of house is like, well, you're talking about me getting paid less money. So those are, you know, so nothing's going to get done at that point. Um, I feel like, so, so I wanted to kind of build a restaurant around the people who are going to be spending their, their lives there, you know? Uh, it's, it's often a joke, but it's really not that funny that like we see the people at our work more than we see our families. Um, but in that, you know, I feel like everybody who's working with me is my family. So I would want the best for them. Right. You know, I would, uh, I would want to give them everything I can possibly give them because I love them all. And, um, and they should be treated like that. I know like, so in that, this isn't really a, a restaurant that's, that's built for making money. This restaurant is built for the experience um, of of the customer and the the connection with the food, and it's also built to sustainably house the employees that work there. Um, I would almost say that I created a, a restaurant idea in my head. Like the the food, I always kind of knew in the last five years that what direction the food would be. So I feel like my first issues or my first concerns in opening a restaurant were to think about these things and change them right away from the opening. So there's kind of an opening buy-in, if you will, that uh, if you want to come work with me and you want to share in these experiences and some of the other monetary things that I'm offering, then you got to be all in. You gotta, you know, you have to be agreeable with this situation. So, like the front of house people that I did hire, I, you know, was very open with them in saying, um, it's possible this could be less profitable for you than other restaurants, but I'm going to offer some other things that I think are equally important and satisfying to your, you know, your person than um, maybe the monetary stuff, but also. If we all do really well, I don't see why you couldn't make the same amount of money or more. Um, so the tipping inequality was one thing. Um, 
another thing that I'm doing is making sure that we pay for health insurance. Uh, I'm just, I have a small staff, so that's not going to hit me as much as other restaurants, I'm How sure. How big will your staff be? I will have uh, three in the back and two in the front and myself and maybe a part-time server mm -hmm. as well. Okay. Yeah, that is a little easier. So, um, you know, when it comes to, there, it's not like a lot of the uh, experienced restaurateurs in Portland haven't thought of some of the things things you do. They care about people, right? They, and they want to pay more and they want to give health insurance. But we've seen over the last few years where sometimes we've seen a little surcharge at the bottom. You know, this is how, mm -hmm. rest, this is how people have to do it. So all that you're talking about, yes, if you're successful, it should all work out. But somebody, it's got to give somewhere because the model hasn't worked for a long time. So it's either going to fall. You've already said that you're your objective is not to be driving a Mercedes um, personally and that everybody's buying into, hey, we're going to make this thing work. And if we're all in it, we'll do well. But then the other part of it is the customers, because they someone's got to pay for health insurance and somebody's got to pay higher wages. It's got to come from somewhere. And I've already noticed in the last month menu prices in Portland creeping up. Yeah, and I've I've had to think about that a little bit, and you know, do I want to come back to this specific spot because I can't afford it? So I guess that's I just wanted to uh, see what your thoughts are as you go down the road and realize, well, I, you know, there's got to be a balance between what we're making, customers. There's there's all these forces coming together that have to work. Yeah. Um... I guess I really think that, um, so there's like, a, a, this is kind of a, a, a strange thought and people might agree with me or might not, but there's an equation to how a restaurant works that's pretty much the same across the board. Your food cost is somewhere around 30%, your labor is somewhere around 25%, and then, you know, there's all the other associated costs, but... I think that um, some of those some of those equations have to change slightly for restaurants to be successful going into the future. Um, I think we're going to have to find ways to drive our food costs down. Um, but they're going up. Which is, they've been going up. Th yeah. So I think you know you have. I mean, that is an issue. That's something that we're able to deal with a little bit because. Um, of the foraging aspect, right. we we have a specific hand up in our case where where we can change that a little bit, um, and this is just one way that I'm like being creative about the the issue at hand is, you know, how do how do I supply some of that food that costs a lot of money, um, and I can put a really high value on elderberries because the cost to chefs is really high. But I know that I can get hundreds of pounds of them if I go out and look mm -hmm. for them. So um, that's kind of how I've been looking at it. Also, you know, I, I'm going to say something that a lot of people probably aren't going to like, but I think that, like, owners are going to make less money. I think that that's if, – if you want to operate, if you want to have a business, um, it's going to cost you more money than it used to. That's just the, the way it is. You're going to make a little bit less. Um, I do think I've talked also with my staff about like 
hey, if we're not hitting our numbers that we need to hit, then we're, we're going to have to come together and be creative. Like, do we want to do, uh, like, supplemental takeout things? Or, like, let's say Kai brings in 100 pounds of chanterelles. Maybe we'll make, like, a uh, chanterelle Alfredo sauce that can be taken home with some handmade pasta or something like that that we can, you know, drive some extra sales um, or do some extra private events. But I figure... If and when that situation comes around that if I have six people talking and thinking about how to solve that issue versus just myself, that maybe it won't be so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Well, you can make that decision together. But then there's the, there's yeah. the wild card. And we talked about it with uh, Mr. Fortgang last week, which is and I, I, I find it kind of an interesting thing to think about. He talked about mm -hmm. the back, I think it was 2017 or 18, when there'd be a snow day or two and they'd be panicked on how to be payroll yeah. and how to make it work. And then you slam them with, hey, you're going to shut down for a year. <laughs> and how are you going how, how to attack that? So there are those wild cards out there and they're, they're, you, you can't plan a business around those. But you, you have to do a little planning to, if those... We now know a pandemic, another wave could hit, right? So there are those yeah. factors too, and they're big. They're, they're... Yeah, we, we've talked about um, the, the neighborhood we're in is really great. Um, and I think that they would support us if we did some kind of like home goods market. You know, I think that's what a lot of people are going to in the, like, if, if I have a business where mainly you're sitting down inside to sit and eat, and that gets taken away, we still have the really great food experience or the food, um, you know, the, we, we can still cook however we'd like, but just not have our dining room. So I think that having the market where you can come pick something up or having meals to go and a limited menu is just kind of inev an inevitability of that happening, you know? So if we, have some other kind of shutdown, then um, we will definitely kind of go into hibernation and and s figure out how to make something work where we can still have some kind of income coming in. Um, well, I think the and, positive thing is you've seen it happen now, so it's not going to be a complete. It wouldn't be a complete surprise if it happened. Um, yeah. We, I, I, I went through the, the opened and shut down twice at Fireside in the last two years. Um, and I started the job actually under pandemic lockdown. So I, I know what that's like to start there and to come out of it. And so I, I guess I did get some valuable experience there over the last two years just in uh, operating under those conditions. I think that's been one of the silver linings is that everybody in the industry who had to cope with that has now swung the bat with the donut on it. And uh, so, and if you can do that, then, you know, there's a lot you can accomplish. Uh, I'd like to go backwards a little bit. You mentioned that you're from the South before. So let's talk a little bit about your childhood experiences with food and what got you interested in it. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so I grew up in Georgia until um, the time I was, I want to say we moved in like late 96 or 97. So I was probably like seven years old when I moved out here. But 
behind my house was this huge wooden area. Um, so that was kind of like how I played when I was little. And then my dad was an avid hiker, or he still, I mean, he's a little old for it now, but he still loves hiking and he did a bunch of trail restoration and stuff like that. But, um, so he got me into Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts. And so when I moved to the Pacific Northwest, um, that was something I was active in. Um, and so I spent a lot of time out in the woods and, uh, just out with nature and kind of getting, getting into it at a younger age. Was, it, was uh, this rural Georgia? Uh, no, I, I had a lot of family out in rural Georgia. Um, but we were like suburbia of Atlanta mm -hmm. basically. Um, but yeah, we had this like crazy back area that was just like ripe for exploring for kids. And, you know, we got it. I remember seeing all sorts of wildlife back there and, uh, just, I guess kind of being on my own in nature as a kid. And that was really... I guess something special that I don't think about very often, um, especially if you think about kids now. I have a four and a half year old, and let me tell you, it's a little bit. Different. I was about uh, to ask that, and I was going to make the comment that you're probably right on the on the last edge of kids that would be going out and playing in the woods without parental supervision. So oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I that's a whole other discussion. What's going to happen with your kids, and uh, you know going forward yeah uh, um and then also when i was like i remember what got me into cooking um i'm pretty sure i had seen somebody cook a sunny side up egg in a cartoon and then i asked my mom i probably was like 12 or 13 maybe if we could eat eggs any other way than scrambled and she said sure as long as you cook it and uh, I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to give that a try. And then ever since then, I've been cooking. And uh, I remember, like, cooking for my friend's parents and stuff when I was, like, 15. And um, uh, my mom enrolled me in uh, a high school class at, I think it was Western Culinary Institute when I was in middle school. And I was just like, yeah, like, I love this. this I can you know, cook with these high schoolers and this is normal. Uh, and so I, I feel like I've, I've, it's been with me for a long time and I've tried to make it out a couple times, uh, but I never got away from it. So was that a motivating tool that your mom was for her or did she just not want to make a fried egg or a poached egg or a sunny yeah. side up egg? She, she didn't enjoy, um, cooking. I think, you know, for her, it was more of a chore than something she enjoyed doing. And she saw that I enjoyed doing it. So she's like, I'm going to let him, you know, enjoy cooking and cook for us. And sometimes he's going to make dinner for me and I don't have to do it. Well, that's it. So are they still in the Pacific Northwest? It sounded like they moved you, they moved you around here. Yeah. So all my family is more in the South still, but we are all out here. My parents live in Beaverton and I live out in southeast Portland. So do they do they come in have they followed you and come and eaten your food a lot at the restaurants where you've worked? Yeah, um they definitely have come in and tried it. I would say they're not big about going out in the whole like Portland scene and everything, but um they definitely they do come and eat and it's always very special when they do. 
Um, there's been a couple of times where I've had my extended family come into Portland and, and get to come and eat at my restaurants too. And that's just always like the best. There's, there's nothing better than cooking for your family and your friends when they come into your restaurant. I would think there's a lot of gratification there. That leads us to the last thing I wanted to ask you, which is, um, you know, you probably haven't done a lot of dining in the last year and a half out and you're a busy chef at the same time. So uh, I don't know how often you get out, but do you have some favorites that you like to mention? Places that when friends come in from out of town and they ask you where they should go, other than your restaurants, what do you tell them? There's there's a couple chefs that I'm I'm looking out for, and I really like their work in Portland. Um, so I guess I would more I would more say who I'm in who I'm kind of following right sure. now. Um. I really like what uh, Michael Zimmon is doing over. Hopefully, I said that right. Is doing over at Kex with this like northern northern mm -hmm. food. Um, I think that's really cool. And then also Tim Artale at Scotch Lodge. I really like his style. Um, uh, John at St. Jack is always doing really cool stuff. But I mean, St. Jack's always at the top of the list. Um, and you worked at La Moule too, which is one of my favorite spots as well. Yeah, I had a really great time working with those guys. And Aaron Barnett is—I couldn't speak highly enough about him. Really great guy. Uh, and then who's the other person I was going to mention? Oh, I mean, uh, you talked about Republica and um, Loro. I really love his food. It's looking really great right now too. Uh, and it's a great experience over there too. I just went last week, so you mention it. It's fresh, uh, top of mind for me, and I've been telling people they need to go as well. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I guess that would be... Well, that's fine. You know what? And you get... I'm going to give you the disclaimer that I always say, y you probably have left some friends off, and they shouldn't be insulted because this is the morning time, and you may not have had an opportunity to, th to think about everybody that you want to talk about you so but right. I appreciate that and um, I'm sure those folks that you mentioned do too um, so exactly when are you uh, when do we see an opening date um, for Mortella yeah. and, um, and then where are they going to find you on social media and the website and make reservations and all that sort of thing yeah so our uh, website and our um, reservations should be open about two weeks before we open um, October 12th is the date we are shooting for right now, and everything seems to be going in order, so uh, I, I feel like that'll be enough time for us to get up and, and run Well, so when this hits, um, it's going to be two weeks before that, so are you going to be taking yeah. reservations right away, or are you going to wait to know that you're opening on October 12th? Um, I think we're going to be taking reservations, because I feel pretty good about where we are good. right now. Uh, so... So I mean that should actually be put make it make, put that down on your list. Couple days here, <laughs> Woo, it is on the list. Uh, but uh, the the website is up. It's morchellapdx.com, uh, and then that's connected with Talk, where you can make reservations when we open up the reservations on Talk. And so yeah, we're just a couple weeks away here, and if everything goes our way, then we'll be. Opening pretty soon. How long? You, how? When did you? 
put this all together and how long has it taken from that point and along with construction, reconstruction. The restaurant was already in pretty good shape for you. you I would imagine you had some minor alterations to make, not major. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I left Fireside at the end of this, at the end of uh, August. And then, um, so I guess this is kind of like a five to six, six week project. That's, inc that's incredible uh, to me that it comes together that quickly. And it, if you're anything like when I've seen, I've watched Lardo op open up a few locations and like they would open at 11 o'clock on a Friday and at 10.55 they were still drilling going on and or so, all sorts of last minute yeah. things and an hour before, even at Ox, same thing when that opened up, an hour before you would not know that that was going to be a restaurant in an hour. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've done a ton of like offsite events and a ton of um, pop-ups and stuff like that. So I'm really hoping to try to not do that. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, ha I have some people on my team who are helping me. It's not just me. So um, hopefully I, I will be able to wrangle everything into order. But um, I, I would say we have a, a pretty good start on things. The, the food menu is pretty much done and tested. There's a couple of things we're working on. Um, so... Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure there will be details going all the way up till the last moment, but we'll try to knock them out before we get okay. there, so that we can just have a nice, nice opening. Fantastic. Day. Well, I I extend my congratulations to you because this is a big milestone in your life, and we're honored that you took some time to talk about it. And again, the one one of the really cool things about a podcast is it is evergreen, so I think it'll mm -hmm. be really fun for you years from now to be able to look back and hear what you were talking about right before your restaurant opened. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure my son is going to listen to it too. Oh good, that's one more listener. You got anybody else? <laughs> uh, I'm sure I have quite a few people who would be interested in, in hearing some things good. I have to say. Well, so, yeah. well, I know there are and I'm really uh, I'm, I'm pleased that, to, that we joined each other this morning and I got the opportunity to get to know you and that our listeners did too. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to see you in the rest. You will. Thanks very much, and uh, good luck. We'll see you soon. Thanks. We'll be okay. in touch. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX, or on Facebook at Right at the Fork, or online at RightAtTheFork.com. dot